0: As I said at the beginning, we're in this series called Big Stories, looking at these, some of our best stories, the stories that if you grew up in the church, you learned probably when you were five or six years old, but we're looking at them again because we don't want them to just remain kids' stories, stories we put in our kids' Bibles and relegate just to those bedtime story times with our little ones. They're stories for us, too. So we're reclaiming them as our own, as stories for adults as well. And we're diving deeper in to see what God has to say to us through them each week. This morning, we're looking at Joseph, famous for his coat. But as we look more closely at the story, we'll see it's not just a kid's story at all. So as we open our Bibles together, I want to invite you to take just a moment to do whatever you need to to quiet your heart, to prepare yourself to listen well to words from the book that we love. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he had made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Once Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream that I dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field, and suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, and then your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. He had another dream and told it to his brothers, saying, Look, I've had another dream. The sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. And said to him, what kind of dream is this that you've had? Shall we indeed come? I and your mother and your brothers and bow to the ground before you? So his brothers were jealous of him. Because, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers were, went out to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he answered, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. And he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they're pasturing the flock. The man said, They've gone away. For I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. They saw him from a distance, and before he came near to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall say that a wild animal has devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams." But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let's not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, carrying gum and balm and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Now when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where can I turn? Then they took Joseph's robe. They slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood then they took joseph's robe the long robe with the sleeves and had it taken to their father and they said this we have found see now whether it is your son's robe or not he recognized it and said it is my son's robe A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father bewailed him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officers, the captain of the guard. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we take a deeper look at this story, I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about what the coat looked like. I want to talk about why his brothers hated him. And I want to talk about who he reminds us of. What the coat looked like, why his brothers hated him, And who he reminds us of. First is the coat. If you were listening well, you probably noticed something different about Joseph's coat in this translation of the story. Our translation called it a long robe with sleeves. Did you notice that? Not a what? Coat of many colors. An amazing technicolor dream coat. This is the point of the sermon where I uh, destroy your childhood and uh, basically just kind of rain on your parade. The colorful coat, the coat of many colors, is actually a mistranslation. Sorry. This may get a little too deep into how the Bible came to be and came to us, but we'll go into it briefly anyway. The Bible is originally written in two languages, Hebrew, the Old Testament, Greek, the New Testament. There's a little Aramaic mixed in, but don't worry about that part. Hebrew and Greek. Now, when the Jews began to move out into Greek-speaking areas of the world and their children began to speak and read Greek, they decided they should translate their Hebrew Bible into Greek. We call that the Septuagint. And when they made that translation, they took this word that describes this coat and translated it as colorful. That's where that began. Now, 400 years or so later, when the Roman Catholic Church is translating the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into Latin, the Vulgate, they follow that translation from the other translation instead of going back to the original. And another a thousand or so years after that, when the King James Bible is written in the 1600s, translated from Greek and Hebrew, they also decide to follow that old translation in the Septuagint instead of the original Hebrew. And that's how, in English, we come to have Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. But the actual term had nothing to do with colors. It's translated in this version as... A long robe with sleeves, and most modern translations record it as something like that. And they translate it that way because the word in Hebrew is very similar to the word for palms or extremities. So a long robe that goes down to the ankles and goes down then with long sleeves to the hands. A long robe with sleeves. There's still some uncertainty about that translation. Because that word is only used in two different stories. Here, as it talks about Joseph, and the other one is in 2 Samuel 13. That's the story of Tamar. A story for another day. But a story in which Tamar is described as wearing this same kind of robe. A long robe with sleeves. And it says in that story, this is the kind of robe the virgin daughters of the king wore. So whatever its meaning... That parallel helps us understand something about this robe. It was the kind of robe that would be a symbol of Joseph's unique and special status before his father. That he was clearly favored by Jacob, a special heir, potentially with even royal overtones. When we talk about a colorful robe, the point is often that it was an expensive, lavish, flamboyant gift like buying one of your children an expensive red sports car and the rest of them used Dodge Stratuses. We see part of that here, but I think it actually goes deeper. It's not just that it's an expensive gift. It's that the gift itself is meant to communicate that he is special, beloved, a crown prince of sorts, not the 11th out of 12 sons, the worthless runt of the litter, but the chosen one, I'm not even sure what a modern analogy would be for this kind of gift. I don't think we have anything similar. So imagine instead you just tattooed on one of your children's foreheads, you're my favorite, better than all the others, so that whenever any other of your children sees them, they see they're the favorite. This special garment was a symbol that Joseph was chosen out from among his fellow brothers as beloved and special before his father, but it wasn't colorful. I'm sorry. First thing we wanted to talk about is what the coat looked like, and that'll come around to be important a little while later. But the second thing we want to talk about is why his brothers hated him. The story is really insistent on the fact that the brothers hate Joseph. It says it over and over again. They hate him, but why do they hate him? Well, it begins in this story because Joseph's a snitch. He's out with his brothers. They do something, and he brings back an unfavorable report. He rats on his brothers for something they did when they were out with the herds. He's a snitch. We can forgive that because the hatred seems to go deeper and deeper and deeper. That's the moment maybe when his brothers began to turn on him But they never forgave him, and they just hated him more and more and more from that day. And they began to hate him as the story went on, because at every turn, Joseph keeps upsetting the way of things, the way of the world, the way it was supposed to go. Joseph keeps flipping it upside down. See, in their world, birth order was everything. The firstborn gets everything. The firstborn is the most important. They're supposed to be the favorite. They receive the birthright and the blessing, the inheritance. They carry the name forward into the next generation. The firstborn was everything. And Joseph wasn't the firstborn. He was the 11th out of 12 sons at the bottom of the totem pole, the runt, worthless and useless as far as the world is considered. And yet somehow... He's his father's favorite. The story says he's the son of Jacob's old age. But he's also the eldest son of Rachel, Jacob's true beloved. It was Rachel for whom Jacob worked seven years for her father to earn her hand in marriage. And yet he was tricked into marrying her sister Leah. Leah. He worked seven more years to marry Rachel, and yet they found out that Rachel was unable to be pregnant. So he had sons with Leah. Rachel sent in her handmaid. He had sons with her. He had sons with Leah's handmaid. And then finally, after there were ten other children, and they were old in age, Rachel got pregnant with Joseph, the son of Jacob's old age. And then another son, Benjamin, But Rachel dies shortly after childbirth with Benjamin. And so no wonder Joseph is the favorite. He's the eldest son of the beloved and now deceased wife. And Jacob cannot help but lavishing upon him as often as he's able. And the other brothers, well, they hated him for it. And they continued to hate him for it. They were the older ones. They were in line ahead of him for everything that was their father's. So of course they hated this favorite youngest child. And then there's the coat, too. This lavish gift of importance and royalty meant to say Joseph is the chosen one, the special one. A gift that should have been given to the oldest, not number 11. Of course they hated him. And then there's the dreams, He keeps having these dreams, and worse yet, he doesn't have the sense to keep them to himself. He keeps announcing these dreams to his brothers. You're all going to bow down to me someday. Of course they hate him. With the second dream, even his father pulls him aside and says, Seriously? They hate Joseph because he keeps upsetting the natural way of things. The first are supposed to be first. The last are supposed to be last. The greatest are the greatest. The most powerful win. That's the way it goes. But if any of you have paid close attention to these stories of God, you know that while that's the way of this world, it is not the way our God works. The God we come to know in our scriptures is the God who came to a barren couple in their 90s and said, you will have descendants as numerous as the stars, and through you I will bless all the nations of the earth. This God is the one who chose to work through the younger brother, Jacob, wily as he was, instead of his older brother, Esau. It's the God who works through Joseph. It's the God who chose Moses while he was a stuttering outlaw banished into the desert for murder and said, you will rescue our people out of slavery in Egypt. Even the great King David was the youngest of the brothers who was considered so useless that when the prophet Samuel came and said, I'm going to pick one of your sons to anoint as king, they didn't even call him in out of the fields because of course it wouldn't be him. As Jesus said, In the kingdom of God, in the reign of God, the first will be last, the last will be first. Whoever wants to be greatest must be least of all. Or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are. And God's inside out and upside down ways have always disrupted the world around us. Because status quo does not go quietly. Look at how Joseph's brothers receive the news of how God is going to work among them. They hate Joseph. They lie in wait for him They grab him, strip him of his clothes, throw him into a pit. They plot to kill him and only at the last minute decide to sell him into slavery instead. And for only a few pieces of silver. They cannot bear the thought of Joseph being exalted over them. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not the way we do things. This is not how it goes. And that's almost all. Always the way that our world responds to the coming kingdom of God rejection and violence. It's important to realize because we seldom assume this is true. We've bought so deeply into this church growth model that we think the goal is always to get as many people here as possible, that there's something wrong with small churches. Numerical growth becomes the only metric we know how to use for success in the church. So we do whatever we can to make the message attractive to as many people as possible around us. But Jesus never seemed interested in this making things attractive. It seemed that he'd do these miracles and gather crowds, and whenever he'd open his mouth, the crowds would leave. In fact, he's the one who said, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own, because you do not belong to the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, servants are not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. There's a distinct sense throughout the scriptures that if we follow the ways of God instead of the ways of the world, we will be at best strange and at worst persecuted and rejected. And that's where Joseph found himself. He had dreamed the dreams of God. He had seen something of God's future and God's ways. He had announced God's kingdom to his brothers. And they only grew to hate him more and more because of it. And instead of bowing down to him, they cast him down into the pit. They strip him of his robe. They throw him into a well and they sell him down to slavery in Egypt. Down, down, down to the bottom of the pit. But having sunk as far down as he can go, Joseph finds that he is not alone in that pit of despair. Did Joseph remind you of anyone else? Does this story sound strangely familiar at all? It's Jesus. It's Jesus, the beloved Son. In his baptism, remember, the heavens open, the Spirit of God descends and covers him like a dove, and the voice from heaven says, This is my Son, the Beloved One, with whom I am well pleased. It's Jesus who's clothed in righteousness and glory from before time. It's Jesus who is the Son, sent by his Father into the far country to find his brothers who are lost. It's Jesus who is stripped of all glory, It's Jesus who was betrayed for a few pieces of silver. It's Jesus who was bound and imprisoned. Only Jesus was actually murdered. And then, of course, rose from the dead, having conquered all the powers of evil that sought to harm and destroy him. It was by emptying himself into the pit by giving everything away, by suffering at the hands of his enemies, that Jesus was lifted up and exalted. The way down was the way up. It is the beloved Son of God who joins us in the pit, and not just to commiserate and identify, not just to advocate for us, but to carry us out of it. Joseph isn't alone at the bottom of that pit. But it does take him a long time, I think, to realize that. If you keep reading through the story in the next 12 or 13 chapters, you'll find that he's sold as a slave to Potiphar in Egypt, that he rises to the head of that house only to be betrayed and tricked and turned in by Potiphar's wife. He goes down into prison where he spends many more years until finally, by being able to explain a dream of Pharaoh, he rises up in Pharaoh's house and becomes the second in command over the whole nation It's there that he's put in charge of a project to save grain for a coming famine and saves then all of Egypt and many of the surrounding nations. His brothers, in fact, come down to buy food from him, not knowing it's him, and he saves even them. Eventually, his whole family moves from Canaan down into Egypt that he can provide and care for them and save them through this famine. Years later, when their father dies, the brothers begin to get nervous that Joseph might now finally take his revenge. But it's then that Joseph is able to tell them this. It's in Genesis chapter 50. He says, even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. Though you intended to harm me, though you did all this evil to me, Yet God intended it for good. See, in the economy of God's grace, God is able to bend even the deepest of suffering back to God's purposes. That doesn't mean something trite like everything happens for a reason. If there is a reason, you may never find out what it is. Understanding why is never the point. The point is that God goes all the way down in Jesus going deeper even than we ever will, but that Christ is not overcome by the evil of the pit, but overcomes it for himself and for us. And that Jesus' overcoming of evil has a way of undoing the suffering in our lives. C.S. Lewis said it this way in The Great Divorce, a book where he seeks to understand and explain heaven. He says, You cannot in your present state understand eternity. That's what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, No future bliss can make up for this. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Or as Joseph was able to say years later, even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good. That God is powerful enough to take even the worst of this world and bend it back to further God's plan. I don't know what pit you might be in this morning. If it's a pit of unemployment, a pit of a failing marriage, Pit of despair and darkness and depression, a pit of addiction or besetting sin, a pit of anxiety and exhaustion, a pit of abuse, a pit of sickness or suffering or pain and prognosis. But whatever pit you're in, if you're in a pit and hope seems to be fading away, this is what I want you to hear this morning you may never come to see this moment with the hindsight Joseph was given. You may never come to understand why. You may never get to see a bigger picture for all of this. But what I want you to know, and what I hope you do see, is that Christ is with you. Joseph shows us Jesus the true beloved Son, the chosen royal one clothed in righteousness yet stripped and beaten for us, thrown into the pit of despair for us, killed for us, enduring all the evil that we intended for harm, enduring all of our hatred and betrayal because God meant it for good. Because God meant it to heal our brokenness, to forgive our sins, to make us whole, to create and preserve a body called the church in the world, to carry us up out of whatever pit we're in, and to one day make everything well. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this story of Joseph, that in his life we can see something of your own will and ways in the world. That you too came into the far country to find us while we were lost. And that while we betrayed you. While we murdered you. By going down into the pit. You have come to join us in our brokenness and despair and rebellion. In order to carry us back up out the other side. Lord may we find hope this morning in the story of Jesus Christ. For he is the light that shines that the darkness cannot overcome. So may his his light shine more clearly into our lives this morning, that whatever pit we are in, we may see the light standing beside us and may find the hope that comes only in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.